<clears throat> so this morning, since you just noticed that, that Tom read through the entire uh, chapter, as I requested he would, um, what we're actually going to do is we're going to actually cover the whole chapter this, this morning. So this morning is when we wrap up our study in the book of Acts. We've been after it for quite a while. Uh, we're finally bringing it to a conclusion. Just so everyone's aware, I will not be here next week, so it's the perfect time for me to wrap, wrap up Acts. Tom is going to, Lord willing, be bringing the scriptures to us next, uh, next Lord's Day. And uh, then when I, when I come back the week after, uh, we're uh, planning on jumping into the, um, I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to work our way through that, just that section 5 through 7. And, um, and then we're going to move on from there to some other, other things before we jump into another book, which will probably be an Old Testament book. Uh, since we've been in the New Testament for, for quite a while, we're going to jump into the Old Testament for a while. <clears throat> so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 28, which obviously is the grand conclusion or the wrap up of the, uh, the book. I think that uh, there's interesting things that need to be presented here in in Acts chapter 8 as we come to the climax of the story that is the entire book of of Acts. Uh, the first half, the, the chapter breaks down into two sections, as you've probably observed. Um, you have, it, you could say it breaks into three, but really it's breaking into two sections. You have uh, the conclusion of Paul's journey to Rome and then his time in Rome. And uh, the, the second half, the time in Rome, um, is interestingly enough covering about two years worth of time, or maybe two years and three months worth of time in Rome in a matter of about, um, what, uh, 20 verses. And so we're going to see that as well. But the interaction uh, with the Jews in Rome is probably the, I would argue anyway, the, important, the most important part of the book of Acts chapter 28. The first half or the first 10 verses, is, you could even argue the, um, the first 16 verses are more the color of the story, the background of the story. It is obviously the conclusion of his journey to Rome. <clears throat> He's been shipwrecked already, and uh, we saw that in chapter 27. And then we come to chapter 28. We're going to breeze through 28 verses 1 through 16, highlight a few things, and then primarily dive into the story uh, from 17 and following. So they, they've wintered there on the island, and, um, and uh, while they're there, or what, they're wintering, I'm sorry, on the island that uh, Paul has identified as Malta, that he figures it out after, or they figure that out after they've arrived there. You'll notice that you're introduced right away in chapter 28, verse uh, 2, that there are some people. On uh, the uh, in the any in I'm sorry the any uh, the ESV it's explained as native people I think it's said differently in the King James Jim what does it say in the King James barbarous people barbarous people or or uh, native people the idea it, with barbarous is not what you think of barbarous you think about barbarous as more people who are like barbarians or uncivilized people that's not really what it's referring to it's referring to there are people who are who are first of all not jews they're gentiles but they're also kind of isolated people doesn't mean that they're barbarians or savages it's just that they're more isolated people as a matter of fact we're going to find out a little bit there is roman influence there uh, very strong roman influence because it's part of the roman kingdom or roman empire um, but very little contact um, outside of their little island at that point in time. 
So it's, it, Paul mentions in verse 2 the native people that are there show, him, uh, show the people that are shipwrecked, all 276 people, unusual kindness. Typically, these type of people are people who are wary, are they not, of strangers? But in this case, they show unusual kindness and the demonstration of the unusual kindness is they build a fire for them. And you'll notice at the end of verse 2, it's because they're, uh, it's raining and it's cold. And so he's, they're welcoming him and building fires for him, for him and the rest of the people to stay warm. Verse 3 has an interesting scenario though. Paul gets up from the fire and he goes and gathers a bunch of sticks that are obviously close by and he puts them on the fire. But there's a snake inside the sticks and that's most likely because it's winter time and they're staying warm and they're kind of semi-hibernating. Uh, but in the heat of the fire, the snake wakes up and according to the text, the snake comes out and bites him in the hand. It's a, it described as a viper, and it latches upon his hand, is hanging off his hand. It's a poisonous snake. <clears throat> Verse 4, the native people see the creature hanging off his hand, and they come to the conclusion, what? That he's going to die. But more importantly, their conclusion of the matter, found in verse 4 and following, uh, no doubt this man is a murderer. And the whole point of why they're saying that is, first of all, they know he's a prisoner. The evidence is really clear. He's a prisoner. He's probably in chains. But even if he's not in chains, he's being guarded by the, by the soldiers, correct? So they're recognizing he's some sort of criminal. And so they say, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So even though he escaped from the sea, he was not killed out at sea. He certainly will not survive this. However... What happens, Paul just, you, I'm just going over the text real quickly. He shakes the, the snake off into the fire. The snake dies. And the people just sit there and expectantly watch him because they expect he's going to explode, as in blow up and you know, uh, get all sickly and eventually die. But he doesn't. <clears throat> no, fi- no, no harm comes to Paul. End of verse 5. And so as they're waiting for him to swell up, or suddenly fall down dead, they wait a long time. Uh, verse 6, and saw no misfortune come to him, so they changed their mind. And their mind is changed. Now they think he's what? He's a god, right? Which, by the way, is directly the opposite of how he's experienced in the past. In the past, when he came into a new city, I can't remember the name of the city off the top of my head, but he came into the city and they thought at first he was a god, and then when he told them, I'm not a god, stop worshiping me, because they were trying to bring animals to sacrifice. Then they decided to take him out and kill him. So it's just the opposite of, what was it? Lystra. Yeah, Lystra, thank you. So it's just the opposite experience with these people than than what what he experienced before. Verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. And this chief man, Publius, he, enter- he received the people that, that were shipwrecked and entertained them hospitably, hospitably for three days. Let me just pause on that just real briefly. Again, this is the color of the story. But Publius is the chief man of the city. Most likely, what he is, is he is a Roman representative. He's there under the auspices of the Roman rulers, the Roman authorities. And he's therefore the chief man of the island. And as the chief man of the island, he would, of course, be well-established. He would be rich. He would probably have a large portion of land that the emperor had given to him. 
And he would, as a result, probably have a, a, a very large house that he lived in that he would, could also perform his affairs, the government affairs from, if you could think of it that way. So certainly he would have enough room temporarily to stuff these 276 people in to, to care for them for a few days versus leaving them out. Now why would he do that if they were just a normal ship sailing by and doing this, he may not do that. But in this case, the high soldiers are there. And they have political prisoners. So he's kind of obligated. He has to take care of them. That's why he's taking care of them for three days. Why does he only take care of them for three days? Most likely he takes care of them for three days for, because what he's doing is, what do you think? He's trying to find a place that's permanent for them because they've got to stay there all winter. And he's not going to have them stay with him all for three days, but he receives them and cares for them, feeds them, shelters them for three days while he's probably trying to find places for them to stay. So that's, what that's what, what's going on here. So he's entertaining and showing hospitality for three days. While Paul and the rest of the people are in this place of, uh, where Publius lives, it happens that Paul, in, in effect, Paul finds out that the father of Publius is sick with fever and dysentery. Which basically means, by the way, dysentery basically in that day meant he had worms. And a result of having worms, he had really bad diarrhea. And you could die from that. It was serious. This is not something kind of flippant. It's very serious. Um, wasn't uncommon either in that day. So Paul visits his father, Publius's father, and he prays and puts his hands on him and he's healed. And of course the word gets out that, that Publius's father is healed. And once it gets out that he's healed, verse 9, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Now if I may just pause in this for a second. Do you think that Paul, just think about the character of Paul, because it doesn't really say this here, but if you think about the character of Paul and, and, and the the modus operandi of Paul. If people are coming to Paul because he healed Publius' dad and people or other people are getting healed as a result, do you think Paul is just being the great healer in the land at this point? No. What's happening, do you think? He's preaching the gospel. So for three months, he's there on the island and what's happening? God is causing people to be healed and by the way, this is the first time in a long time in, in, in Acts that people have been healed, right? It's a long time since this has happened. This is a new people who have had almost no contact with the outside world except for Publius and occasional ships that stop in. But it's not like they are, they are travelers. And they're they're kind of isolated. And so Paul begins to preach the Word of God most likely. I can almost guarantee it. But what's interesting about this statement in... in um, it, up to now in verses 1 through 10 is this. <clears throat> Actually, up 1 through 9 is this. If you, don't, if you didn't pick up on it, in a very real way, what we find in Acts 28, 1 through 9 is a fulfillment of something. If you remember way, way back when we taught through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16, there is a, a, a section of verses that when we were there, we talked about it as it is debatable whether it actually is scripture or not if it's inspired scripture or not it talks about uh, picking up snakes it talks about people being healed things like that it seems like 
for sake of discussion, that if that is inspired text, it seems like this is actually that text is actually being fulfilled here. Because Mark records that this is actually what's going to happen. And what happens here? He's, he's handling snakes and he's not dying. He's laying his hands on people and people are being healed. It's exactly what Mark 16 is talking about. But I suspect what's happening at the same time, in fact, I think it's not a suspicion, it's just, it should be assumed, is that Paul is preaching the gospel to these people from Malta who have never heard the gospel. There's no record of anyone receiving Christ at this point in time in the text, but it, it certainly it, it ought to be understood that as he's healing people, they are, uh, they are receiving the gospel as well. Verse 10, Howard says, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now it does, if, if you just think it through, it makes you wonder, when you think through Acts chapter 1-27, through 27, how did people respond when they came in contact with Jesus? They either what or what? They either rejected or accepted, right? Rejected or, or received. But if they rejected Christ, or if they rejected the Gospel that Paul was preaching, what typically happened? Stoning, hated, abusing, rejecting, Paul having to escape over a wall by night, and on. I'm sorry, what's that? Yes, all sorts of things, right? All sorts of bad things happened, didn't they not? Every step of the way. When people did receive Christ, receive the Gospel that, that Paul preached, how did they respond? They showed love to Him. They rejoiced together. And they cared for Him. And on and on. Didn't they not? So it makes you wonder. Again, it's just a wondering. I'm just throwing out here as a possible wondering. It is interesting. They also... On, they, Paul's been here for three months now. And most likely, it's not just Paul preaching the Gospel, right? Because who else is there with him? Luke is with him, Aristarchus is with him, and there may be a few others, right? And maybe some people on the ship got saved, right? Maybe. But it is interesting, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. That sounds like, and I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility, it sounds like perhaps, you hear my qualifications there, it sounds like perhaps in Paul's preaching of the Gospel, Perhaps the people of Malta were receiving the gospel. And as a result, they honored us greatly. You think about it, why would anybody honor some prisoners? Why would anybody honor prisoners? Obviously, they thought he was a god at the beginning. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. Early on, they thought he was a god, but you, if you know Paul enough, whenever they thought he was a god, how do you always respond? Swiftly he responds to that, doesn't he? Every time he responds very swiftly and rebukes them and corrects them and introduces them to the true God. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but the pattern is there. I suspect there's just a conservation of language that, that Luke is using at this point assuming that the reader will connect the dots to previous statements. Now, I could be wrong on that, certainly. But with their response to Paul as he's leaving, and they're honoring him and the rest of them when they're about to sail, and they put on board whatever we needed, it sounds like they have a perspective that does not exhibit itself from people who reject the Gospel. If that makes sense. Just want to put that out there. At that point in time, verse 11 
it says after three months, which implies after three months on Malta, we set sail on this ship that, uh, that, they're, that the Maltese people are providing everything they need. We set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. The previous ship was also of Alexandria who tried to winter at the island, but what happened? It was destroyed at sea. Another ship in Alexandria was not destroyed at sea, most likely sailing at about the same time, but was not destroyed at sea. Probably was not at the same exact point on the island, but somewhere else on the island. But they set sail on this other ship, a ship of Alexandria, same location, with the twin gods as a figurehead, talking about the figureheads on the front of the boat, which tells us something about the Alexandrites, right? That they're, uh, they're idol worshipers. <clears throat> And so they set sail with them, and it says next, verse 12, they put in at, at Syracuse, which is not in New York. Just a point of clarification. They put in at Syracuse, and we stayed there for three days. So they arrive, it's about an 80-mile journey, they stay at Syracuse, and they stay there for three days, and then it simply, it's all it says, then verse 13, from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, which means that they... They, a circuit means they're tacking back and forth against the wind trying to gain headway is what it basically means. And so they make it to the next location, the next port, and after one day, a south wind, they don't, he doesn't really say anything about that uh, arrival either, and after, about one day, after one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to uh, Petrulio, Petrulii. Now that was about a 180-mile journey. Verse 14, everything changes suddenly. Verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. There's a discovery made. They arrive and they're going to stay there for a little bit. And Paul, upon arriving, discovers something in that town that he didn't know anything about. He discovered there was brothers there. What are brothers referring to, obviously? They've, he discovered there were believers in this town. So There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So he came to Rome, and so we came to Rome. For, so for seven days, Paul and um, and perhaps uh, and most likely Luke and and Aristarchus and maybe one or two others, uh, and also the soldiers guarding Paul, uh, stayed with the brothers for seven days. And the implication in staying there for seven days is what do you think? What's going on for seven days? He's Preaching the gospel to believers, right? He's ministering to the believers there in, in the city. I suspect that the rest of the people of the ship were still on the ship for those seven days. But Julius most likely lets him go in, and they go in and they fellowship for seven days. <clears throat> and so he says at the end of verse 14, and so then we, come to, we came to Rome. So that was the next journey and that is to Rome verse 15 and the brothers there that is in Rome uh, and the brothers there when they heard about us and this is this gets interesting now when they heard about us in verse 15 they came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us so the word gets out Paul has arrived in Rome and while he's there the word begins to spread immediately that Paul's there. Why would the word begin to spread immediately that Paul's there, you think? 
Well, maybe, but most likely, knowing Paul's storyline and how Paul acts whenever he arrives at, at a city, what does he do? He preaches the gospel once again, does he not? He starts preaching the gospel and people start hearing the gospel. Most likely, this is what's happening and it's starting to spread. What's interesting about verse 15 is it talks about how people who are believers, brothers as it were, they started to hear about Him. How quickly and how far did the word spread that this guy Paul was in Rome? Well, it tells us, Luke informs us in verse 15, as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns. The Forum of Appius is a marketing town it's, it's got a big mar- it had a big market, an open-air market. It was 41 miles away from Rome. And three taverns is 50 miles away from Rome. So first, what's happening? The Gospel is being proclaimed in Rome by Paul. Immediately, it begins to spread. Because that's what the Gospel does, doesn't it? It begins to echo away from where it's being proclaimed. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, you're either aggravated and hating it or you are embracing it, right? And loving it. And as a result of embracing or loving it, you're proclaiming it. And quickly, what begins to happen? And the implication of the text is it's really fast. What begins to happen? It starts to spread outside of the city even. It's bouncing around inside the city walls and it's spreading outside the city and relatively quickly it makes it 41 to 50 miles away. Now you need to understand that's a a pretty significant thing because if you think about it, the spreading of the message that Paul is there and by implication the Gospel that Paul is preaching to spread is not like it can spread today. We can spread the Gospel today relatively quickly. I can, in a moment, get the Gospel to Africa today, can't I? Whether it's via the internet, or via the phone, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and many others, right? It can be there in an instant. In that day, there was none of that. Not only was there none of that, there was no public transportation. There were no nice roads. There was no interstates. There was no air flights. There was no trains. There was no cars. There was nothing. There was cobblestone roads at best. And once you got outside of the city, except for the major roads, it wasn't even cobblestone roads. It was dirt and loose stone. That's what it was. And yet, relatively quickly, the Gospel and the knowledge that Paul was in Rome spread 50 miles away. Which meant that either people were really hating his message and griping about it, and probably that was some of that, and Christians down in these two places started to hear about it. And there were also, most likely, there were Christians that were hearing Paul. (coughs) And in hearing Paul, what would happen? they would in their travels do what? They would be expected to. You'd expect that they would, at least from the biblical storyline, it would be expected that they would be talking about it, right? Because just as with Paul, the love of Christ controls them, you would expect that the love of Christ would be controlling others as well. Does that make sense? And so the Gospel and the message that Paul is in Rome begins to quickly spread. What I find is especially striking is that not only did it spread to these two towns, 41 and 50 miles away from Rome, 
But what does the text say happened next? Again, starting in verse 14, we, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days and so we came to Rome. Verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns to meet us. Which means what? The people of Appius and Three Taverns did what? They traveled. Correct? Now, just to process this a little bit, because this net desperately needs to be processed because to, to, to today travel 41 to 50 miles is not a big deal, right? Not a big deal at all. I mean, 50 miles today, if you hop in the interstate, it's less than an hour. We don't think anything of going to the shore, right? That's like two and a half hours. But it's a long drive. I mean, distance-wise, it's a lot of miles. We don't think anything of even driving to Florida if we want to, right? But here's what's interesting. They travel 50 miles to go see Paul. What, what is that like? Well, process it through, and here's what you end up with. The average traveler in that day would probably, at best, would be traveling about 10 to 12 miles a day. If they really, really pushed it. Average travel. Remember, they're walking. The average traveler, and it's not easy, smooth roads. It's tough roads. Average travel, if they really push it, may get 15 miles in a day. So let's say 15 miles. 15, 30, 45, that's three and a half days. Three and a half days. Each way. That's a week of traveling. Three and a half days to, three and a half days back. To go see Paul. So I just want to bring it to modern days. How far today, if we got in our car, how far could we get in three and a half days? We could almost get, well, maybe push it to California. Um, but, but, I mean, realistically, we could pass Colorado. You realize that? Drive from here to Colorado in your car in three days. That's how, one second, Jim. That kind of gives you a little sense of where these people's hearts are and where their minds are, isn't it? Yes, Jim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, he would not have passed through the cities. The cities were south. Yeah, well, that's everything I've looked at. The, city, the cities are, are, one of the cities, one of the two cities are south. South of Rome, yeah. Yeah. Um, possibly, but not, necess not necessarily because it doesn't say that because they, 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 they heard about him that he was in Rome. They didn't hear about him as he's coming through. It says they heard about him that he's in Rome and so they came up to Rome. Yeah. So it's not, not that, they, that they would have heard about it when it passed. The text seems to say they heard he was in Rome and so they had to come up. Yeah. So they came to Rome to see him. So the point is that you get the sense when you read the text, you get the point that when they, heard Rome, they, when they heard that Paul was in Rome, their response was what? Let's go to Rome. I want to hear Paul. I want to see Paul. I, and, and please understand, this is not a worship of Paul. 
This is, I want to see Paul. I want to hear Paul because I want to hear what? I want to hear the Gospel. I want to hear Jesus. I want to hear about my Redeemer. And it was so valuable to them. It was so valuable to them that they walked 50 miles to go see Paul. The equivalent of going past Colorado from here. That's kind of striking to me. And I, I just bring it up to point out the value that they had in this. And we know, we understand, we haven't changed. People haven't changed, right? We do place value in things, don't we? And we don't place value in other things, right? We all do. Even though it's all different for all of us. And the value we place on things demonstrates itself, doesn't it? It demonstrates itself in how we use our money. It demonstrates itself in how we use our time, doesn't it? Our values are always on display, are they not? The value these people had of hearing of Jesus was so great that they were willing to go perhaps three and a half days to hear about him. That's actually quite stunning to wrap our brains around that and to think about that and realize that. And then, if I may just say this, for me to challenge myself, for each of us to challenge ourselves, what is the value we place on the Gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the value we place on the Word proclaimed? It's an interesting perspective. So the brothers come to meet Paul in Rome. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So in other words, interestingly enough, they're excited that he's there and he's excited that they're there, right? So they're mutually encouraging one another, are they not? Right? They're mutually exhorting and encouraging and ministering to one another. And, and, and that's exactly what the text says. Verse 16, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. So just like we saw in pre- previous chapter, chapter 27, um, the, um, uh, Julius is allowing Paul much freedom. So he's allowed to stay uh, by himself. And so obviously the soldier's there, uh, but he's allowed to stay by himself. Coming up to verse 17, that's a lot of the color of the story, although the, the, um, the, the uh, believers from the two towns are pretty interesting. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders. Here we have the culmination of everything that Paul's been doing every step of the way, right? He arrives in Rome and he does what he always does. He calls the local leaders of the Jews. When he gathered them, he says to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Rome into the hands of the Romans. So Paul, in 17 and following, is giving a defense of himself once again, right? We've seen numerous defenses, but now he's doing, for the first time, he's doing a preemptive defense. Isn't he? These leaders have not accused him of anything, have they? So it's a preemptive defense. I suspect that Paul probably figured they'd already heard about what happened. They'd probably already gotten letters from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem uh, warning, warning them uh, that Paul was coming and all the rest. So he says, Brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, that is, the Romans had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, which we already know from the previous text, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. 
That's what the Jews were calling for. But the Romans knew there was no death penalty that was applicable. Verse 19, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. In other words, he says, I'm not here bringing a charge against the nation of Israel. I only appealed to Caesar because I knew there was no charge that was legitimate against me. So verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Where did he just go? He just moved from a pure defense, preemptive defense to what? Once again, he just moved to the beginning of the gospel. Did he not? Did you hear it there? Since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. What's Paul referring to? Israel's hope from Genesis 3 to to the point in time when Paul is speaking in chapter 28 has always been upon the promised coming of the Messiah. Correct? The one who is going to set his people free. That was the hope of Israel. And so Paul says in this transition statement, I have asked to see you and speak to you since it was because of my proclamation, my declaration of the hope of Israel is why I am wearing this chain. The reason why I'm wearing this chain is because I proclaimed truth from the Scriptures about the Messiah and the leaders of Jerusalem rejected it. That's what he's saying. And from here, he's going to unfold to them. First, there's going to be some interaction, but he's going to unfold to them the Gospel. So they say to him, they interact with him, they respond, they say this to him in verse 21, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil of you. In other words, they're saying, we haven't heard anything. Now, they may have, they may not have. They may be telling the truth, they may not be telling the truth. Because earlier, the Jews in Rome were thrown out of Rome because of fighting over Christianity. And the, and, and, and the, the emperor of Rome said, get out! And now they're finally back in again. They don't want that to happen again. So they may very well be lying to Paul. They may not be. But either way, they say they haven't heard anything. They have received no letters. And nobody has spoken evil, any evil at all about you. Verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for, uh, with, regard, for with regard to the sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Which gives us a great insight, a glimpse into the world of Paul's day. What do we see here? The Jews in Rome are saying, we've not heard anything about you, but we've heard a whole lot about what? Christianity. We've heard a whole lot about Christians and Christianity. We want to hear what you have to say about this. Since you're here, we'd like to dialogue with you and hear what you have to say, but everything we've heard about this sect is negative. Everyone is speaking negatively about the sect. Now, he's probably referring to both Jews and Gentiles. Or they're probably referring to both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews are speaking negatively. And at some level, it almost sounds like there's a conflict here. They said they haven't heard anything about what he's been teaching and, and haven't heard anything about, about um, 
about Paul himself, but at the same time they're saying everything we've heard about Christianity is negative, but who's been the primary mover and shaker in the spreading of Christianity? Paul! (laughs) So it almost seems like the Jews are speaking out of both sides of their mouth here, doesn't it? The Jewish leaders, that is. But at the same time, we discover in this statement, whether it's true or false, I think it's pretty true, is that there is, generally speaking, a hatred of the things, all things Christian. There is a despising of all things Christian, which would make sense, would it not? If you come in contact with Jesus, it demands a response, does it not? So we saw in the book of Mark, we saw it all the way through for 27 chapters in Acts, you come in contact with Jesus, there will be a response. Either you will love Him or you will hate Him. And if you hate Him and the things of Christ, you will, by definition, speak out against the things of Christ. Will you not? Of course you will. And so everything they are hearing, therefore, both from Jews and Gentiles, most likely, is coming from people who are not believers and followers, but instead it is people who have heard about the the Gospel and have absolutely rejected it, and so they're hearing only the negative things. However, in the midst of all that, that's the culture that Paul is living in and is ministering in. If I may just say one more thing, we've seen it, haven't we? Every step of the way. Could I just ask you a quick question? In the midst of this, everything everybody's saying is negative about it. Have we seen Paul cower? Have we seen him compromise? Have we seen him grow silent about the Gospel? No, we haven't. Quite to the contrary, he has been what? Yes, it actually even intensified his efforts. Now, if I may just be vulnerable for a second. Yesterday afternoon, I was at the coffee shop in Morgantown. Uh, There's been a gentleman and his fiancée and daughter that have come and visited us twice. Uh, His name's Christian. I met with him yesterday. He's probably listening today. I know he won't won't mind me talking about this. But I met with him at the coffee shop in Morgantown yesterday, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We're sitting outside. And we're talking, and we're talking about the things of the Lord. We're talking about the gospel. And he's asking questions about the church, and, and we're just dialoguing back and forth. And all of a sudden, somebody came out of the coffee shop and sat down at the table next to us. There's like seven or eight ta- tables out there. And you know what I did all, automatically? I started talking quieter. Why did I do that? Maybe I need more caffeine. Yeah. No, why'd I do that? Does, that? does that sound familiar to you? Why'd I do that? We're talking about the gospel. Why in the world would I get quiet? But I did. And real quickly, I realized it. What, what, what just happened? I just started talking quieter. I got uncomfortable. Why would I be uncomfortable with the gospel? Is that not sounding like being ashamed of the gospel? Isn't it kind of a corollary? Fear of man. That's right. It began to overshadow the gospel, didn't it? And I realized that the Spirit convicted me right away and I had to, in my heart, repent and I started talking again. And I wasn't trying to get the other people to listen. I was just talking like normal. And the people got up and they moved to another table. 
I don't know if they didn't like what I was saying or they didn't want to hear any words. It could have been something totally innocent. I don't know, but they got up and moved another table. The point is, what we see in Paul is what? Boldness. He wasn't shy. If I may just say this, I suspect if Paul would have been at the, at the coffee shop yesterday in Morgantown talking and the guy sat down, the girl, I'm sorry, sat down next to us at the table, I suspect Paul would have talked a little bit louder and probably would have turned around and tried to get the person involved in the conversation. Do you think? Do you get a sense that would be the case? I mean, is that not Paul's character? And it's because the love of Christ would control him, right? And so he would probably try to sweep that person into the conversation. I mean, that's what I would suspect. I mean, he doesn't show up in a coffee shop in Morgantown in the book, right? But you kind of get the sense that would be the case. He's, he's unashamed. He's bold. And the more, more pressure, opposition he gives, he receives, I'm sorry, the more gospel he gives, isn't it? The more bold he becomes. The more vocal he becomes. The more prophetic and, 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 and that he becomes in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, all that to be said, we come to verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, so they agreed to meet with him. So they had appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So more people came. There was more Jews that came because they wanted to hear. And these, he's talking about unsaved Jews who wanted to hear what Paul had to say. So more came in greater numbers. And by the way, literally, that means in much greater numbers. There's a whole lot of people who came. And Paul starts to talk to him. And so he gives him a devotional. Right? He gives, he, he gives him, what's that? Yeah, he, gave, he gives him a little devotional and then hands him out daily breads, right? You know what it says? No, what does it say? From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What does Paul do? This large group of Jews, practicing Jews, comes to Paul to hear what he has to say. And Paul looks at them and says, I'm, in his heart, I'm going to go as long as you'll stay here. As long as you're here, I'm going to preach the gospel. As long as you're going to listen I'm going to proclaim the truth. From morning till evening, which implies, depending on the time of year, it's probably sometime in the spring, well, definitely sometime in the spring, probably later spring. If it's from morning till evening, the implication being shortly after sunrise till, till sunset. That's the implication here. So right now, today, just to give, let's say today is the day, May, whatever it is, 16. May 16th. Sunset is at 8.12 p.m. Tonight. 8.12. I just know because my watch tells me that. Sunrise is just shortly after 5. How many hours is that? Somebody good with math? Well, 5 to 5 is, is, is 10 hours, and then 3 more, that's 13 hours, right? 15? I'm really bad. That's right. That's right. It's 12 hours, not 10. So 15 hours of sunlight, right? theoretically, what we have, if it was May 16th, you know, sometime in the spring, 
Paul sat there for maybe 15 hours straight. And these unsaved people listened to him expound the word. Maybe I should do that on Sunday mornings. <laughs> yeah, like you must feel like I'm shortchanging you now, right? <laughs> he went from sunrise, or shortly thereafter after sunrise, all the way through the sunset. What did he do? He walked through the scriptures with them. You know what he did? Unrelentingly. People would get up, go to the bathroom, people would come back, people would get up, go get a meal, come back. Paul probably grabbed a meal and ate, and the whole time, what's happening? The Word of God is being proclaimed. And that was happening? Oh, and by the way, I didn't finish it yet. They're at Paul's house, and he most likely does not have something. You know what he most likely does not have? He most likely does not have the Scriptures. As a prisoner, he most likely does not have the Scriptures. And he didn't typically travel with scriptures. So where is he getting all the scriptures from, do you think? It's all the spirit working in his heart from all the scriptures that he's learned. Which is stunning, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, to me, is very challenging. Here's a guy who has been immersed in the scriptures. First, before he was saved, Right? He was immersed in the Scriptures before he saved, and now, since he's been saved on the road to Damascus, he had to relearn them all, didn't he? He had to relearn it all because he's all wrong in so many ways. And re-immersed in Scriptures, so much so that the Scriptures just, what? Flowed out of him, did it not? Or to put it a different way, he drank at the fountain of living water, and out of him flowed What? Rivers of living water, right? Rivers of living water. Isn't that what's happening? 13 hours of rivers of living water was flowing out of him. Why? Because it was in him. It's an interesting study to think through and think about the ramifications of this. We, today we have Scriptures everywhere, don't we? We've got it on our phones, we've got it on our computers, we've got 10, 15 Bibles at home, we've got them everywhere, and we're more biblically illiterate than we've ever been. Seems like. I know it's kind of hyperbole, but it really is in general. And Paul could sit there and talk about the Scriptures for 13, 15 hours. And you know during that time frame what's happening, right? We've got to understand what's happening here. This is not a monologue. What do you think is happening? They're challenging him. They're questioning him because he's saying, here's Scripture A, and this does not mean what you think it means. It means this. And here's Scripture B. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It means that. Because in Paul's, in Paul's theology, the, the law and the prophets are all pointing to Christ. And that's Christ's theology as well. It's all pointing to Christ. And so when he goes into the law and prophets and he says, this is what it says, and this is what it means. Do you think that's going to raise questions in their mind? Because that's not what they think it means. Do you think it's going to cause, and their leaders he's talking to, Jewish leaders, 
Do you think they're going to say, whoa, wait a second, Paul. That's not what it means. You're wrong. This means that. And then Paul would say what? No, it can't mean that, and here's why. Exactly. This is why it doesn't mean what you think it means, and he would unpack that then with more Scripture, would he not? And they'd say, well, no, wait a second, that can't be because, no, what you just said can't be because, and he'd bring more Scripture to bear. So this is not a monologue, this is an on-the-fly. He doesn't have a manuscript he's working off of. This is a proclamation with an interaction going back and forth, and he's dealing with objections, he's dealing with, with, with arguments, and he's just continually adapting by the Spirit, right? As Peter said, don't worry about what you, what you need to say, because what? The Spirit will give you the truth. Now, I want to remind you, that won't happen by the Spirit if the truth is not in you. But because the truth is in Paul, and he's, and he's saturated with the truth of the Scriptures, that when this is happening, Paul is just, pip- just picking out the Scriptures and pitching them right back to him. Over and over and over and over and over for maybe 15 hours. You get the sense of the love of Christ is controlling this man, right? I, mean, I can think of a lot of things to do at 15 hours. Can't you? We could be really productive in a lot of things in that, in that 15 hours, right? But for, for Paul, there's nothing more beautiful than this 15 hours. And so he proclaims the truth of God. And the, 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 the beauty of the text is the truth in him does what? It comes out. It cannot be contained. It cannot be contained. And it pours out of him. And the evidence he loves Jesus is what happens? The truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus oozes out of every fiber of his being. You see, that goes back to, again, what we were saying earlier. We evidence our values, don't we? Is he evidencing his values here? Is he evidencing what's really ultimately important to him here? Absolutely. And if these people who are sitting there objecting to him are, are, are truly objecting, and most of them are, we find out in just a little bit, are they also not exhibiting what's valuable to them? Their disagreement is supremely valuable to them. And so they are objecting to him and quarreling with him and fighting with him and, and with, with, trying to withstand him. The values are on display. They absolutely are. Also, I think it's interesting, before we get off this verse, verse 23, I want you to notice something. For maybe 15 hours, Paul is bringing the gospel to bear. And where does he go? He goes to the law of Moses and the prophets. Does he not? And I just want to pause now for a second because it's really easy to look at the text and say, well, of course he went to the law and the prophets because the people he's dealing with are what? Are Jews. So they would know the law and the prophets, so of course he goes there. But I want to tell you something. It is interesting, Acts 1-27, through 27, he also goes there with Gentiles. Now, he has to go more basic because they don't know the law and the prophets, right? But he still goes to the law and the prophets. Why does he do that? 
Because it's in the law of the prophets that you discover the truth of Jesus being who Jesus is. You divorce the law and the prophets, and what is the basis for Jesus' declaration of who He is? There is no basis. And so for Paul, he goes to the law and the prophets over and over and over again. Why? Because that's where all the prophecies are about Jesus. That's where the law of God is that Jesus must what? Fulfill. It is the law that shows man what? According to Romans. They're condemned. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're condemned. They can never measure up because God's standard is what? Absolute perfection. They can't measure up. It's only in the law and the prophets, both the prophecies and the the declarations and the commands in the law, it is only in them that we discover who Jesus really is. Does that make sense? Without that, you end up with a Jesus that is not who the Bible says Jesus is. Now, He still is who the Bible says He is, but you can't understand Him outside of that. If I may just pause this for a second, this is why I find it really stunning that in our Gospel presentations, we, we, we shorten and crush down the Gospel just to the point of saying, you know you are a sinner, right? And then we do something silly like, you, I mean, you stole pencils from, from work, didn't you? Or, or something silly like that. And, and, and we, 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 we totally ignore the absolute necessity that every presentation of the Gospel does in, in the Scriptures, and it shows how absolutely undone we are. And how absolutely we don't measure up and have no hope. I just had recently a discussion with somebody on Facebook who is arguing that, that Jesus' message of the Gospel is only good news. There is no bad news. It's only good news. And it's universal. I said, no, it is decidedly bad news first before it is good news. If there is no bad news, there is no good news. We must have bad news first. Otherwise, good news is not good news. Good news, in this case, means that although you deserve this and you're doomed to this without any hope, Christ brings hope. The the bad news must be there first. And that bad news must be absolutely robust bad news. It must be universal bad news. It must be universal destructive bad news. It can't be one little aspect of your life is bad. No, no, everything in you is sin continually. Does that make sense? Without that, there is no gospel. Without bad news, there is no good news. So when we, the reason why I point this out to you is I think it's absolutely essential that we see what Paul does every single time. You see Peter doing it. You see every single apostle doing it. You see Jesus doing it over and over again. There is a dramatic focus on the bad news out of the Scriptures. It is absolutely essential that first we understand the bad news and where the bad news comes from in the Scriptures and why there's bad news, which is, what's the reason why? Because what? Because we're bad people, but ultimately it starts where? In the garden, right? It starts in the garden. It is essential that we are able to lay these things out I mean, I really appreciate that Paul talks to these people for 15 hours. He doesn't just give them the Romans road, does he? 
He talks to her 15 hours. He's laying out all the bad news, isn't he? At the same time, he's laying out, what's that? He's, he gives him the whole highway. Yeah, he lays out the, the bad news in all of its ingloriousness. Is that the right term? Non-gloriousness. It's horrifying. Lays out all the bad news. And then he gives the good news of Christ that the prophets are all focusing towards as being the solution to what otherwise would be an absolute conundrum. Because I'm condemned. And he shows how all of this all points to Jesus. How essential it is that we understand the Gospel from that perspective. Because then the beauty of the flower of the Gospel goes into full bloom. It's not some sort of, well, there's a bud there that may be a flower someday. No, it's there. It's fully on display. The bad news makes the good news look beautiful, doesn't it? Because it is beautiful. Because it's the answer to the bad news. That's exactly where Paul goes. It is essential that we think through the gospel that way. Not only to unsaved people, but also to each one of us. That we hear the bad news as well as the good news. Because that causes us to rejoice in the bringer of the good news, does it not? Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So we got people on both sides, don't we? Some are at the end of the 15 hours are saying, yes, absolutely, amen and amen. But no, that's not really what they're saying. It sounds like it, but it's not. Because what it really says here in verse 24, literally, it says this. And some were beginning to become convinced to what he said. That's really what it means. It's in the imperfect form in the Greek. Excuse me, Jim but it's in the imperfect form in the Greek and it means they're beginning to understand or beginning to become convinced what he said. But others disbelieved. That is actually in the, not in a different form, it actually means they actually disbelieved. So some were beginning to become convinced. Others disbelieved. As a result of that, after however many hours, 15 hours perhaps, verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they were, so in other words, they're no longer arguing with Paul, are they? They're disagreeing with each other. The ones that are beginning to become convinced and the ones who are disbelieving what Paul says are arguing with each other and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. And it's intriguing where Paul goes. You'd think he would just try to encourage them. You know, hey, you guys who are struggling and starting to think maybe there's some hope in this or rightness in this, you know, let me, let me encourage you to continue on in this. And for those of you who are disbelieving, listen, I just want to encourage you, look at the Scriptures and really think it through, but that's not where he goes, does he? Paul makes one final statement to them, and this ends the whole meeting. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And he goes on to say what he's going to say. Now, this statement in Isaiah is coming out of Isaiah chapter 6, right after, after Paul has his vision, and then God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. This is a statement God gives Isaiah right afterwards. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. How to win friends and influence people, right? My goodness, it's like, who slams the door shut here? Paul does. 
You know what Paul in effect is saying? I for 15 hours have proclaimed the truth to you. I've laid your error bare to the Scriptures. I have pointed out the truth robustly and completely. You have everything needed if the Spirit would merely work in your heart to receive Christ and be saved. That's what he's saying, isn't he? It's exactly what he's saying. Paul is saying, I have, I have not held anything back from you for the last 15 hours. I've answered all your objections with the Scriptures. There's much more I could say, but it would be repetitive from what I've already said. Not that it wouldn't be valuable, but you've gotten the truth. So he continues on in verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. What has he just done? This is the culmination of all of Acts, right? God said, you're going to go to the Jews and what's going to happen? They're going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're going to reject. And then I'm going to say, and the purpose for that is so I can send you to the Gentiles and they will Listen, so here he declares in the grand culmination of the entire book of Acts, he said, here's the deal. God said to Isaiah, and he's saying the same thing all the way down to today. And that is, you will hear but never understand. Exhibit A right in front of me. You will not understand. You will indeed see, but you will not perceive. You will not understand the ramification of what you're hearing. You will not you will not perceive the ramification of what you're seeing. Why? Because your heart is grown dull. You think you're spiritual, but you're not, he's saying to these Jewish leaders. You hear with your ears, but you really don't hear. You see with your eyes, but you really don't, because in effect, spiritually speaking, your eyes are closed to the truth. And why is that? Because of what Isaiah said, what God said to Isaiah. I'm closing their eyes. I'm shutting their ears so they do not see, so they do not hear, so, so that they do not understand, and so they do not turn and believe. And so, correct. Correct. Yeah, he's not regenerating them. Not because of what they're doing. The Spirit is doing all of this. The Spirit is causing their eyes not to see and their ears not to hear. Yeah, it's God's, it's God's working. Yeah, just like He did with Pharaoh. I, uh, Romans chapter 9. Same exact thing happening here. Absolutely, Tom. And the point of it is so that the Gospel would go to the Gentiles. But interestingly enough, it says what? They will listen. Which is a really important statement. Because this exact statement is said elsewhere in the Gospels. It's said elsewhere throughout the Scriptures. This idea they will listen. And it's interesting, in Matthew, if I remember right, it's Matthew 21. I could be wrong on the text. But I think it's in Matthew 21. It says they will listen. And the evidence that they will listen is the idea of the text is what? They will bear the fruit of that listening. The fruit will evidence itself. See, what we have here with these Jewish leaders is some are starting to be convinced. There's, in other words, they're saying, well, this has plausibility. Does that make sense? This has plausibility. 
The others are saying, no way, absolute, done, over, not interested. We reject this. And what Paul is saying is, the evidence of believing, even at this early point, is what? That they'll listen, and as a result of listening, there will be fruit evident. The fruit of what? Of righteousness, and more importantly and more basically, the fruit of repentance would be evident. That's what it means when it says they will listen. That the, the, the actual listening will evidence itself in what? It will evidence that a heart has been changed. It has been made alive. The, the, they will listen and it will show. The listening will be evidence that faith has been given to them. It will show. It, not merely their ears will work. Because the, these Jewish leaders, their ears are working, right? Not spiritually, but physically. But spiritual ears working, spiritual eyes working, means that their lives are changed. And changing. Which brings us to 30. And 30, you'll, oh by the way, real quick, you'll notice there's not like, I believe, Jim, you have a, cha- a verse 29. Do you not? Yeah, you have a 29 and it says, can you read it out loud? Okay, there's the text. There are, th- that verse shows up in a couple, man- I just, just, this is a, a translation issue, but that, that verse in the, in the Greek shows up in like two or three manuscripts out of 5,300 or so that, that exist. It shows up in two or three, and so there's a few translations that put it in. The King James put it in. Most translations don't put it in, and the reason why is because it's only shown up in in several manuscripts, but also because it's implied in a previous verse. They're arguing amongst themselves, and then the meeting's over. So the implication, and it says real real clearly, I think it's in 27 um, or 26, that they're disputing with each other. They're arguing with each other, right? So they're arguing each other. It says basically the same thing that was said earlier. And so what most translators have done in most of the translation have decided not to put it in because it only shows up again in, in, in uh, two or three older manuscripts. So that's what it is. But it doesn't change anything. Whether it's there or not, it says the exact same thing. Just wanted to point that out to you. If you're looking at your text, there's no verse 29 here. That's why. Anyway, in verse uh, 30, it says, he lived two whole years at his own expense. So something changes after this initial time he was staying somewhere that's provided for him for a little bit and then he's allowed to stay in his own in his own place so he seemingly rents an apartment or something like that to stay in a dwelling place that he's paying for himself and most likely the soldier's still there um, but and will remain with him there for these two years so for two years he stays on his own expense and during those two years he, he he's not allowed really to travel at all he's not allowed to go anywhere so what happens is people are coming to him, you see that in verse 30. People are coming to him. And what is he doing when people come to him? It says he welcomes them. But what does that mean that he welcomes them? What do you think? He's preaching Christ to them. Now, perhaps it's some of these Jewish leaders that were beginning to believe, right? Maybe there's some of them. Maybe it's most likely it's other Gentiles in the in the area of Rome that are coming to see him. Maybe it's even people coming from further away. We don't know. It's just generically people are coming to him. 
what you have here is you have, if I may put it this way, you have prison seminary going on. Do you not? you got people coming to Him. Why? Because they want to learn of Jesus. They're coming to Him because they want to be taught. They're coming to Him because they want to hear the Gospel. And He welcomes them in for two years and He welcomes all of them in and ministers that maybe there's even some unsaved people coming and being saved. They're coming because they've heard the Gospel and they're coming to Paul because they want to hear the Gospel more. And they're being saved. What does it say in verse 31? While he's there, it's very clear he's proclaiming the Kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So for two years he's there, he's preaching the Gospel, he can't leave, and he's preaching the Gospel, but notice it's described how. He's preaching what? Yes, but what, the thing, what is the actual thing he's preaching? What does it actually say? The Kingdom of God. When he talk, when he, and this, this is really important, when he's talking about the, the Gospel, when he's presenting the Gospel, in, in Paul's mind, what he's really talking about is the Kingdom of God. He's understanding there's kingdoms in conflict, right? Kingdoms at war. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. You're either in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. This is the biblical categories. You're either an enemy of Christ or you're a friend and family and citizen of the kingdom of heaven, right? So you're one or the other. You can't be both. You can't play around. You're either there or here. And, and it, is, it is a moment in time when you cease being a citizen there and you become a citizen here. And so his whole time he's talking about either what does it mean to be a, a kingdom of in the kingdom of Satan? And what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? And he's presenting the kingdom of God as being what? Superior in every way. One is defeated. One is victorious. One king is victorious. One king is absolutely defeated. Correct? That's what he's talking about. And he's talking about Jesus being the king of the kingdom of God and what all the ramifications are. It is, a, it is a vast, all-encompassing sweep. Again, I just want to remind you, it's not a mere little Roman's road. Correct? It is a vast, panoramic, and yet specific sweep of the kingdom of God and everything about the kingdom of God. Do you think for Paul it is absolutely essential that Paul understands and that he wants everyone he comes in contact with to know about the kingdom of God. Do you get the sense that's his, that's his case? Do you get the, the, the case for him? It's not, for Paul, it's not good enough that you would say, I love Jesus. Do you get that sense? Do you get the sense that for Paul, it's not enough that you would just say, I'm a Christian? Do you get the sense that that's just not something that would be pleasing to Paul? And I say that because I hear it all the time. I hear all the time Christians saying, well, you know, I'm, I, I, my friends are Christian, so I'm happy. Well, wait a second, is he really? What does he know? What about the kingdom of God? What about, what about, what about, what about, what about you know, that's, that's what's going on for Paul. It's ongoing, a conversation about the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to stop here because we're over time, as always. Um, I'm not going to go till, till it's right. What I'm trying to get across to us as we bring the whole book of Acts to a conclusion. Remember we said the book of Acts is about the working of the Holy Spirit. The works of the Holy Spirit in the apostles, yes, and primarily in the apostles, but also in a lot of other people as well, right? But that working of the Holy Spirit is always this, and that's what the grand conclusion, culmination here is. That working of the Holy Spirit 
is about the entirety of what is revealed in the Scriptures about the kingdom of God. The idea of the Scriptures, the idea of salvation, is a kingdom and a citizenship thing. It is an identification thing. What is our identity? Our identity at one point in time was the kingdom of evil, was it not? The kingdom of darkness. Our identity was bound up in the king of that kingdom, was it not? Satan. When we become believers, it is a, an identity change, is it not? It is a citizenship change. I become a citizen of the kingdom of God and Christ is my king and my identity is bound up in Christ. How much is it bound up in Christ? He, Paul says, is my life. Or Colossians 3, he says, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's an identity statement in chapter 3, verse 4. And you see that everywhere. This is an identity thing. It is a citizenship thing. Everything hinges on our citizenship. Everything hinges on our identity. And so for Paul, it's all about the, the vast sweep of an understanding of the kingdom of God and its ramifications in our life. So we could argue that in light of what Paul says in chapter 28, we either have ears to hear and eyes to see. And when we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we see the kingdom of God in ever-growing expanses. It's almost like you could argue when you first get saved, you're hiking up a mountain, but you're kind of below the tree line. And you don't see much, right? Correct? You see, you see a little bit. You know you're on a mountain. You can feel it. It's on a mountain. You're walking along. You can feel it. But the further you get up, the sparser the what? The trees and the vegetation get, right? And the sparser the vegetation gets, the further the vista is, right? And why do you climb a mountain that has, has a, a true vista? You climb it for that, don't you? And what the Spirit is doing in our lives is bringing us up the mountain, isn't it? It's like He's bringing us up the holy mountain. And the higher we get up on the mountain, the greater the vista is. And slowly but surely we see more and more and more and we're amazed and we're, we're glorying in the king of that, of that kingdom more and more. And when we finally get to glory, that's the pinnacle, right? That's the peak. And we'll be in glory and we'll see the ultimate vista. Until that day, we look forward to that, but we long for it also, don't we? We should long for it. And you want to hurry what? Up the mountain because you want to see a greater vista. You must not be someone who is satisfied with the base of the hill. You see this tree and that tree and the undergrowth and that's all you see. That's a great place to be for starters, isn't it? But it's not a great place to be for someone who's been saved for a while. There's something far greater to see, the vista of the all-encompassing kingdom of God. And eventually, we will no longer look at the kingdom of God while still being pilgrims in this kingdom of darkness, will we? Eventually, we will see only the kingdom of God. Is it any wonder that as John walked up the mountain, so to speak, he kept saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> oh, for the day when I am set free completely, right? Oh, for the day when I'm set completely free from all the residuals of this 
fallen kingdom that I still live in as a pilgrim, but I'm in the kingdom of light. Oh, for that day when all will be seen. Clearly. Today we see through a, a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Amen? That should cause us to long to seek for the kingdom that is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us as we go from here and as we close down the book of Acts in our study. <clears throat> Give us the zeal to seek the vista. Help us never to be satisfied. Help us to long by Your Spirit for greater understanding and as a result, greater worship and as a result, greater proclamation. Help us not to be satisfied. We ask You to give us a, a holy dissatisfaction for the things of this world. For the things that once gave us great satisfaction. And I pray that you will work in us so that the thing that, the only thing that gives us satisfaction is you. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?